from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. The Alan Bristow Memorial Lecture, uh, this is the eighth one. I think the committee were very shocked to hear that it was, it was the eighth lecture. Um, in the past, we have had some very interesting speakers uh, looking at the, uh, uh, well, the developments that have taken place uh, from the early days of, of Alan Bristow in terms of uh, operating helicopters from ships and so on and so forth. And this evening, we've got a, a, a very interesting lecture where we're actually looking a little bit what some people think might be the future unmanned systems. Uh, in fact, it is probably more reality than, than the future. Um, we have uh, four uh, speakers today, and uh, I'll let them introduce uh, um, themselves as, as, as they come up to the podium. Um, but they are Jonathan Bailiff, who is the Bristow Group Chief uh, CEO, uh, James Harrison, Sky Futures co-founder and CEO, Nick Rogers, Sky Futures co-founder and CRTO, and finally Ben Daniel, Bristow Aerial Solutions Training and Develop Manager. The floor is yours. Well, thank you very much, and thank you all for attending what hopefully will be a very enlightening and uh, engaging evening. And we're most, most looking forward to your questions, so please have them in mind as we, as we go through. Um, just, just like to start and say, you know, it was, it was really interesting actually and when we first uh, met with Bristow, learning a little bit more about um, Alan Bristow and, and kind of the background behind that. Um, Alan Bristow, if, if you don't know, joined the, the fleet air arm in 1943, um, having much earlier in life been born in, in South London. My grandfather was actually born in London and joined the fleet air arm in, in 1944. He was also a bit of a, a maverick and pioneer in business, so there must have been something in the water in, in Canada in, in the early 40s. Alan also, you know, was there right at the beginning, the kind of pioneer of, of aviation, of helicopters, you know, learning on Sikorsky, on the, um, one of the very early commercial models, which, which we're told was incredibly difficult to fly. And there's a lot of parallels between the types of drones that, that we first um, engaged with, with ourselves, with our military background. Um, myself, my co-founder, uh, Chris Blackford, who's, who's sitting in the audience, um, and, and Nick actually all had a, a bit of a military background. Um, Nick and Chris flying um, at university, and, my, and then myself and Chris actually in the, in the military, in the army, uh, later on in life, where we encountered drones um, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, where, where we were using them mainly as kind of data gathering devices. And this really opened up our eyes to what could be done in the future. So there's a lot of parallels between the kind of beginning of of, I guess, Alan Bristow's um, of start in, in the kind of aviation world and, and our start. And I think it's really interesting to see where, where this will take us. Now, I don't want to take up too much of your time, so I'm going to hand straight over to, to Jonathan Bailiff to, to, to in, introduce himself. Hi, guys. Thank you. I'm Jonathan Bailiff, the uh, President and Chief Executive Officer of Bristow Group. Um, which is a, a multinational corporation that, uh, that really forms partnerships uh, to provide the world both safe and, and especially safe, efficient uh, operations 
in, in the aerial solution market. Obviously, you think of us as a helicopter company, but I'll talk to you a little bit further about how we're executing on Alan Bristow's dream. And uh, first, I do want to thank the Royal Aeronautical Society for having us and obviously having us host this lecture series. So, John, thank you so much. Um, very much appreciate that. I want to thank the whole Bristow family. I see a number of, of you here today. And Heather, I really appreciate um, your presence here today. And you've been at all the lectures. And, and to me, that matters a lot. And I'm trying to bring that back to Bristow. Um, as much as I am a, uh, a US citizen, I spent uh, five years flying in what we call USAFE, uh, the US Air Force's Europe, uh, mostly out of Lukers uh, with the Phantom, the last version uh, of the F-4 Phantom in the American Air Force. But I did fly the British version, too. So I have a particular affinity for, obviously, work in this area of the world, which is, in many ways, the heart, not just the founding, but the heart of what we do. So I'm going to give context to what industrial aviation is, both in a visioning, but then how does UAS fit within that? I was trying to think of something very clever about how to relate UASs to the SNAP election recently, which, uh, you know, I, I hear the sigh, like, oh, again? Uh, I, I didn't come up with too many clever things, politicians droning on or other things like that. But the best way I would explain it, uh, just to be, try to be clever at least, is that we got to do it, right? We got to get involved in UAS as part of an industrial solution, right? But there are going to be unintended consequences of it, right? We could end up putting part of our business uh, at risk. And that's okay, because I'd rather see a drone flying around a platform and inside of a tank than see a human being doing that work, which is still very dangerous and frankly not very efficient compared to digital sensors on a drone. So to me, it's about understanding how to do this safely. It's got to get done. Snap has got to get done. But there are going to be unintended consequences that come out of it. Let's talk about, though, the broader vision. People always ask me, as uh, the CEO of Bristow's, and, and I'm only the fourth, really, uh, what the vision is. P people always ask me what your vision is for, for the company. I don't have to come up with too much. I have a book that was written, and that's this book, Alan Bristow's biography. I tell Heather this every time I see her. If you want to know what the vision is, just read this book, although not maybe the parts where there were, uh, let's just say that we have to comply with different business practices today than Alan had to do <laughs> back 50 years ago. But, you know, we're just trying to get back as Bristow's to a more diversified service that really the foundation is safety and his fanatical commitment to flying safe in very hazardous environments. I would say that I've taken it to one other place, which is my view is just because a person, man or woman, goes off to work into a dangerous environment, whether it be an offshore rig, whether it be uh, in search and rescue, doesn't mean that they have to get hurt. In fact, I would argue that every human life, whether you choose to do a dangerous possession, is, is, still, is still the same. And Alan believed that too. And the idea is how to do this stuff safely, efficiently, with a high level of customer service. So when I talk and make a joke about, you know, we got to do it, we're either going to get involved in UAS or we're going to get rolled over by it. Right? This is coming, and it might happen in our, inside of our helicopters. We're going to talk about a piece with our partnership with Sky Futures. Because people always ask me, why is it called Bristow Group and not Bristow Corp or Bristow Inc. and not Bristow? Because we're a group. We operate, for the most part, as part of partnerships. And Sky Futures is our partnership. We both uh, are a shareholder of theirs, but then we have agreements by which we can bring the best of what Bristow brings to the table, which you're seeing up here today. Everything that Alan you know, training the Commonwealth to fly helicopters, really inventing the idea of offshore transportation, 
coming up with new and interesting ways to work with new and interesting people around the world. And you're seeing that in these uh, pictures today, whether it be Trinidad or whether it be today offshore in Nigeria or also in other areas like Australia. This is what Bristow Group is about, and I would argue that UAS is an integral part of it because we use Bristow Group, but when you look at UASs, it's Bristow Network. Right? Now we're starting to get into how a network works, which I'm sure uh, my predecessors, um, Mr. Collins, you would say, it's a network, right? People are a network. Information is a network, right? And that's what we're trying to hook Bristow to um, as an industry and then as a company. These are the words that Alan used to try to describe what he was trying to do when he first began uh, in this very uh, interesting space. And our uh, work today is to continue this legacy. But it's also to continue my predecessor, Bill Child's legacy in Target Zero Safety. But if you really look at what these words mean, they're not just words. We try to live it every day. And my goal as CEO is to create the partnerships that will make these words mean something. It, it means something when you have a courage in your workplace. And then when you talk about leadership and partnership, we, we don't just want to say these words, we want to do them. And we're not perfect. There are places around the world we can do better. But the idea here is to always strive for this. And you're going to hear a lot in the future about Bristow and the word strive. But that, to me, is what we're trying to do, is live up to this legacy. I don't have to come up with new stuff. It's great. I've already got the model, right? And don't get me wrong, we're bringing it into the 21st century and beyond. But this, what we're trying to do in industrial aviation, Alan came up with. And UAS is just a natural extension of that a natural extension. This is a quote I used about three years ago when I look at successful companies, whether I've been part of them. I believe the US Air Force is a successful institution. The REF is a successful institution. But for me, when I look at what UAS is supposed to do, it is supposed to create a wraparound of safety in a strong service culture and high performance. Right? And high performance companies take risk. And we are taking risk. We're doing this and committing millions of dollars at the same time, I will tell you right now, we're losing money. We're losing money because of this horrific downturn. But my view is this is the time you have to invest. This is when your competitors don't invest. And so we're investing in these types of partnerships to differentiate ourselves and to create a higher level of service performance. I didn't say this before, but we're going to take questions, and, and so I'm going to get through mine fairly quickly. This is my last slide. I'm going to turn it over to Ben to talk about the network. But you know, very similar to um, Alan's vision and how he talks about it, I like to use visuals. Um, and for me, uh, a tree is one of the best ways to think about industrial aviation and long-term vision. We have a root structure, which is target zero, right? And that target zero safety culture, which has been with us for over 60 years, is what Bristow is about. It is what allows different cultures, Nigerians talking to African Americans, talking to Latin Americans, talking to Australians. The safety culture is what actually creates the root structure. A centralized business operations, which means that I can train a pilot to go off and fly a helicopter, a 92, or I can then take them and get and become a drone pilot or a UAS system operator. That, that central operations is something that Alan really tried to do, but at the time, it was very difficult just given the nature of the business environment. When you and then merge Bristow with offshore logistics, we can create that trunk of the tree. But what's important is all four of these branches, offshore oil and logistics and search and rescue, fixed wing services with Eastern Airlines 
Eastern Airways and uh, in Air North, civilian search and rescue with our UK SAR, unmanned vehicles, right? These are all part of what an industrial aviation company does. And a successful one will have a root structure of safety, a global trunk of the tree to reduce costs, and then deliver products regionally. Because industrial aviation is a regionally delivered product. We do not fly you know, globally, we fly regionally. And that's important, you have regional relationships. The other good news is I didn't have to come up with this either. I came up with this talking to a client who happens to be, I call him the godfather. Uh, not the godfather of soul, like James Brown, but the godfather of thinking about what UAS could be, and that's Mark Stevens, who's here, former head of Shell Aviation. In my discussions with him, this is all great in theory, but the question is, will somebody buy it, right? Because I'm telling you, it's not enough just to be safe. Somebody's got to make sure that we can do this commercially. And in talking with Mark, um, the three things I talked about is, one, diversification outside of offshore logistics, and then two, getting into UAS, and then three, having support agreements, maintenance agreements similar to airlines. And we're getting there. And UAS and today, we'll talk about it and take questions. We'll show you how we're trying to get there. But others are going to get there, too. And the, our idea is, is to lead the industry and be an excellent global competitor. With that, I'm going to turn it over to uh, the person who really knows what they're talking about. Ben will take you through the idea of what this combined capability and other things can, can work on this. Thanks. Oh, I'm sorry. Nick, you're going first. Sorry about that. Thanks. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, yeah, very apt introduction. And uh, um, thank you to the Royal Aeronautical Society for having us again, Richard and the, t and the team, and John, obviously. Um, it's fantastic to be here. It's absolutely the right forum for us um, because a lot of what we do is, is uh, aviation but also technology as well. So that's what I'm going to talk about for the next, uh, for the next few minutes. So... Um, a little bit about Sky Futures. So we, we're going to talk about the combined operations capability that we've, uh, that we've built over time. And those, that really is just a, a kind of potted, a potted list of uh, some of our clients. They're global clients. They're very big companies. Um, and they're very important to not only us as a business, but also Bristow, but also the, the wider community. And it's something that you know, introducing a disruptive technology like we have done has not been the easiest thing to do. Uh, and I'll say that. So... I want to start from a point from where, you know, what, what happened? Why, why did we need drones in oil and gas specifically, I suppose, you know, to this conversation? So just talking about what happened in 2009, we set up the business. We spent a couple of years um, trying to uh, generate ideas. We, know, we knew that we needed to be in a market vertical that, was, that both needed the service, but also that we could disrupt as well. So... By 2011, uh, we finally managed to get offshore for the first time. And what we were replacing really was, was those two things that you see. It's pretty bland. There was a PDF report with an appropriate coffee stain on it at the end and a bunch of photos. Okay? So we thought that using drones, using this fantastic aerial perspective, using the unique characteristics of a drone, that we could really change this. So what used to happen was that a four-person team would go offshore. Um, typically, that four-person team would be offshore for eight weeks. And then subsequent to that, they then go back to their desktops, having been grateful that their lives are still intact. And they would then spend six weeks creating that PDF report, which would then get looked at. But 14 weeks after the event, and probably around about a million pounds of direct cost, how much value is there? What is the value of that piece of paper? And so that was the question that we, we basically decided that we needed to address and you know, using the unique characteristics of the drone, as I've discussed. 
So then we went on the journey. And the journey spent a lot of time uh, looking at industrial expertise from oil and gas. If Chris, James and I are honest, we didn't have a huge amount of that. So we had to build, we had to buy that in. Uh, we developed highly experienced pilots. My background is in commercial aviation. Um, I'm also a manned pilot for a large British legacy airline. Um, on a captain on the Airbus 320 now, having previously flown wide bodies as a senior first officer. But, you know, we, we could take 100 years of manned aviation and kind of jam that into the unmanned space and make sure that, you know, there was a future for people like Bristow to come and take an interest in a company like Sky Futures. So highly experienced pilots are very important. Um, we've gone on a journey with, took us to UAS licenses in 24 countries. Sky Futures would never work in a, in a jurisdiction where we weren't approved to do so. So that's been a big challenge, certainly on me from the regulatory point of view. Um, we also went to the United States. So the Section 333 exemption was their exemption process uh, to be able to get offshore to actually work. And we had the 46th exemption in the US and the first international company to be able to do that. Um, like I said, experience technology. Well, the drone flying stuff, once we could do that safely, we then needed to look into where was all this going? Where, where was the data exportation? We didn't have any of that experience, so we needed to build that in. And so by 2013, 2014, we were building in software teams, tech developers, that sort of thing. So that was leading us into industrial IoT and also something close to my heart. And I know John Burt, who's in the audience, had a big instrument, or he was instrumental in through Oil and Gas UK, driving through regulation. If you go and speak to the CAA, they'll say, that's brilliant, we'll set the baseline competency, but industry has to take responsibility for itself. So Oil and Gas UK came along and, and we basically built the regulations with a working group of about six people and I know Simon's in the room as well. So hugely important that industry is driving the change through that the industry needs. So just, if you will, just uh, about a minute of kind of where Sky Futures is now um, in terms of the three kind of strands, I suppose, which is training, operations cap capacity and professionalism, which obviously Bristow are helping significantly with. And also at the back end, it's the data, the data exportation, the drone-enabled data that we're able to get. Every so often, an industry has a revolutionary leap, a product that changes the way people work, a process that opens up new possibilities, something that makes people think, why haven't we always done it this way? Since 2009, Sky Futures have been leading innovation in drone-based vertical structure inspections, finding safer, faster, and more cost-effective ways to collect and store high-quality, measurable data sets. Common industrial inspection techniques require manned teams collecting information on structures. This process is costly, subjective, and slow. Isn't there a better way? At Sky Futures, we have pioneered technology and practice to utilize drones in some of the most demanding industrial environments. Our tech has saved our clients millions in man hours, repair costs, and reduced their risk exposures by removing the manual inspection process. But we didn't stop there. In 2016, we launched our cloud inspection data platform, Expanse. This software allows you to store and track data collected from drone inspections, pinpoint problem areas for future observation, and categorize problems into areas for different teams to review. Accessible from anywhere in the world, with zero subjectivity, and a host of enterprise-focused tools to revolutionize the way you inspect and plan maintenance. This is the revolutionary leap industrial inspection has been waiting for. We've just built the future. 
How are you going to use it? I apologise for the slightly cheesy last, uh, last line, but actually, genuinely, that's, that's how we're thinking. So that's where we are now in terms of the present, and I just want to touch upon, very importantly, the, the training ability. You know, we absolutely must train people to deploy this technology safely. It's something that both Bristol and Sky Futures believe in, that it's absolutely important. So um, we now have a training academy based down in, in Gloucester at the Fire Service College. I don't know if many, any of you are familiar with the site, but that's been hugely instrumental because anybody that knows about aviation, knows that flying around in fresh air is really not much use to man or beast. So we have a fantastic scenario-based uh, training facility, which is really, really important at the front end of that training piece. And we're training uh, enterprise customers, emergency services, fire, police, ambulance. Um, and you know, that's now a, a multinational business, which is you know, hugely important for us. And that's really just a, a flavor for the sort of stuff that we can do. It has its own oil and gas rig. It has a live flare. It has commercial buildings. Um, it has 10-story um, buildings. It has an earthquake zone and a crash train and downed aircraft and all this sort of stuff. But it's absolutely hugely important that we can train people in the environment to which they're going to expect. Because actually, ultimately, where they end up is out here. Okay. 120 nautical miles northeast of Aberdeen. Uh, that's quite a nice day, so I'm told. Um, but, uh, you know, again, on the left, um, you know, no longer do those people, they still have to go up there and fix stuff. So a question we always get asked is, you know, are you putting people out of jobs? Well, actually, we're not. But actually, what we can do is all the pre-inspection work, and as you'll see in a minute with the technology, we can actually start to measure, scale, and track things as well. So safer, fast, safer, faster, more cost-effective is absolutely critical. And typically, from that million-pound price tag I talked about for the PDF, and we'll look at the technology, you know, we're about 85% cheaper, probably eight times faster than the incumbent manned processes. Not only as well do, do we go... Um, outside of stuff, inspecting stuff, we also got a gimbal drone that you'll be able to see upstairs afterwards um, that goes in. So we don't build these platforms, but um, some fantastic companies do. And this next slide is basically the, the world's first in-tank without human entry inspection that was ever done on a, live on a FPSO. So the incumbent process here used to be to exhaust whatever gas or liquid was in these huge confined spaces of, a, of an oil tanker or an FPSO or whatever it might be, and then fill it up with water and then put men in the rubber dinghy and rebreathing units in and let the plug out. So again, this is an, an, an area where we thought that we could do significant or make significant differences. And again, to get the technology to the stage, the processes, the procedures took some time, again, with a fantastic manufacturer called Flyability. Um, but that was a, an example of how Sky Futures and Bristow are leveraging um, technology advancements in the oil field. The next question people always ask is, please can you remove that cage, it's really annoying. So again, another example of how Sky Futures is pushing the boundaries. Again, this is our photogrammetry expert within the team um, who does some fantastic stuff with, with being able to remove things like that. So again, it's not just outside, it's also inside. So I'm now going to hand over to Ben, he's going to talk a little bit about the industry, um, industry-led information cycle, and then I'll talk about the technology a little bit later on. Brilliant. Thank you, Nick. Uh, and thank you also for the uh, very interesting uh, introductions. Uh, also, thank you to all of you, uh, and good evening. My name's Ben Daniel. Uh, I'm the Training and Development Manager for Bristow UAS. 
Uh, I was in the Royal Navy until August last year as a jungly seeking and lynx pilot, uh, and then towards the end of my time in the Navy as a safety manager. Um, as a safety manager, I was hauled into Wings's office, uh, and Wings is Commander Air for those who don't speak Navy, um, and he said, these drones, you've got to keep them away from my aeroplanes. Do whatever you can. We had a, a few enthusiasts who had the audacity to operate within our military ATZ. So with that in mind, I went back downstairs and I thought, how can we stop this happening? Uh, it took me quite a long time to work out that we couldn't. And more importantly, we shouldn't. Because the key was not trying to stop it. The key was trying to integrate it into what we were doing. And the we were there first argument doesn't hold up. If we don't start to integrate and look at how we can bring all this together, we're just going to come to loggerheads. And that was the conclusion I came to. So I spent the next three years trying to liaise with the groups that were doing it, trying to integrate as much as possible, uh, dealing with some very, very uh, fascinating, knowledgeable people who were very open to our suggestions. Because guess what? They didn't want to lose their assets either. They didn't want to be putting other people at risk. And often they hadn't quite realized that they were doing it. So that was what I spent three years doing, which led me nicely uh, into uh, Bristol UAS, um, only three weeks after leaving the Royal Navy, which was a nice little holiday. What I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about now is the Bristow Group idea of how this would look in mainly a theoretical sense, but also in a practical sense. The model we're going to look at is called the Network-Centric Information-Led Model, or NSIL for short. The idea occurred to me originally many years ago, sat in Afghanistan in a seeking uh, with an incredibly powerful camera strapped to the front. There was three people in my aircraft, and I was the only person in my aircraft who could see what that camera was producing. Nobody else in any of the other seven platforms above or below me in that stack could see what was on the tablet on my knee. For me to try and explain what was going on on the ground in a very dynamic situation had me staring at the screen going, there's a person and a car. People found it very difficult to understand what I was trying to get across. So what we're trying to build up is a picture of a network network-centric and information-led. That passage of information is what enables the increased decision-making capability. It boosts mutual situational awareness. It increases agility and sustainability. And from a commercial aspect, it allows Bristow Group and its partners to be able to identify, along with industry partners, what the concerns are, what the issues are, and develop something that is tailored to those particular concerns. So the sort of assets we'd be looking at 
are on a uh, rather traditional three-layered system. So a terrestrial line of sight layer down at the bottom with an aerial layer at the top and at uh, the top in a higher altitude space layer. The key part is that all of these assets need to be able to talk to each other because it's no point, no point in any of them operating in isolation. <coughs> Jonathan spoke earlier about how <coughs> the most important thing or amongst the many important things is that strategic partnership element because Bristow won't bring all these assets to the party necessarily, but we need to be able to liaise and talk, integrate, share information, and form that network with those who are doing it. As was mentioned, it's about service. And the service has to start with this relationship. This relationship is absolutely key. Those involved in the industrial aviation decision-making area and those involved in the industrial decision-making area. Because if that relationship isn't strong, if they're not working for a common good, then the whole system will break down. There's no point an industrial aviation provider pushing technology onto an industry that doesn't want it. So the model as we look to make it up, the end goal is to deliver impact into the industrial sector. The aviation assets will do that through a process of support and gather. And this is a very flexible beast because it can be done at the same time or it can be done by different assets. And the most important thing about the network-centric approach is it's essentially like a golf bag. You're not gonna use every club and I have tried on a golf course at once. It doesn't make you very popular with other users or indeed the groundsman. You pick the club or the range of clubs you need to provide the task in hand. To provide the support, gather the data and feed that into a data management process. Now the data management process, it's really important not to think of that as a place or a thing or a person. It's a process. It's a process that can be done sometimes in the cockpit by me staring at my little screen. Not the ideal scenario. But it can be done in a data management center. It can be done um, wherever it needs to be to get the information or to do the interpretation of the industrial sector to be able to provide the influence to those who are in the position to make the decisions so that they can deliver the right impact to get the benefits for that industrial sector. The key point I'd like to reinforce there, it's about improving that decision-making process there. Everybody works smarter, works more effectively, and produces better results. But this isn't the end of it. It doesn't stop with industrial aviation because that's just part of, and as Nick alluded to earlier, the industrial internet of things. It's a big picture to get data, a data set that is valuable will require input from not only the industrial aviation assets, but also a whole range of data gathering and acquisition assets. And that's everything from people's mobile phones to head cams, to environmental cams, to remote surface vehicles, subsurface vehicles. But they've all got to speak the same language. 
because it all gets fed into that data management process. And as Jonathan alluded to earlier, as Bristow deals with different cultures around the world, it's important we're all talking the same language. And that regional aspect is critical. The industrial aviation assets. Apologies. The industrial aviation assets are what we're going to be talking about this evening mainly. What coming up there was a very easy slide for me to put together because, again, as Jonathan said, those challenges were exactly the same as Alan Bristow would have faced 65 years ago. Interoperable communication and data relay systems, again, we might think of it as a modern issue. Actually, it's not. Communication, when you're sending a crew and a person, or a crew and a helicopter to the other side of the world for a three-month contract, if you don't have those communication links, uh, and anybody who's read the chapter on the, um, uh, the extraction from Iran in the book will know how complex it was with a series of code words and a series of, uh, uh, a series of identifiers to be able to get all of the aircraft and the people safely out of the country. So interoperable communication and data relay systems is really vital because without it, that network can't speak to each other and it can't be information-led. We've already touched on and discussed the business, business and development partnerships, uh, but that comes from uh, every part of this process. So we've been uh, developing relationships with academic institutions who are looking at the use of unmanned technologies uh, for uh, a variety of um, uh, outputs. Also, OEMs, original equipment manufacturers, distributors, regulators, everybody in the chain to make this work because it will require everybody. Platform capability, both in the manned and the unmanned, uh, the, uh, it was touched on earlier, some of the difficulties that were encountered in early rotary aviation, for example, exactly the same in the unmanned sector. And we're talking about technology that is, a lot of the time, less than 10 years old, and it's advanced wildly in 10 years. Imagine what the next 10 years are going to bring. And those sensors and the payload development, again, vital because you need to find out what data needs to be acquired to get the data gathering equipment that can do it and make sure it's compatible with the platforms you're putting it on. Interoperable sense and avoid, I won't delay too much on that because we'll be touching on that uh, later uh, when Nick will be going into that. And the final two are very important because the social landscape and the regulatory environment, I think, largely go hand in hand. Because without the public will to allow unmanned technologies to interact with manned technologies and to inter interact with industrial sectors, there's not going to be the push to bring this successfully to pass. Where there are challenges, there are always opportunities. The opportunities are as far and wide as the mind will take you because by looking at that network-centric approach, you can apply it to anything. These are some of the ideas we've come up with. Oil and gas, um, which uh, 
which, which has been discussed already, search and rescue, and we'll be looking to apply this model slightly, uh, shortly in a search and rescue context. There's a whole range of them there where unmanned technologies, hand in hand with manned technologies, can provide huge game-changing advances for those industrial sectors. Bristow Group are not going to become farmers or train drivers. But Bristow Group will involve the specialists and work with them to identify what the particular pinch areas in all of those sectors are and how the network-centric information-led model can be applied to provide those positive benefits. So as I said, very quickly, applying the model in a search and rescue context. To start off, we go back to that very first slide which had the network-centric approach. The reason why I've chosen search and rescue is because it's a really good example of using all the assets within the network. So there you can see the framework being stood up with an area of interest and the process begins. So as we talked about supporting and gathering. So in this context, we have two assets that can provide support to the area of interest. And that would be through tactical or strategic transport, for example. The gathering process is underway constantly. For high altitude platforms, talking about platforms that can stay airborne for 10, 12 days at a time, a persistent presence could be available across or overhead all of the major SAR hotspots in the UK. 24-7. At that point, you are in a position to be able to gather real-time information and feed it through the network back to those decision-makers in an incredibly quick fashion. There's the network feed, and as you can see, everything talks to each other because the people who are in harm's way, the crews of the manned aircraft, and the emergency response team on the ground need to find out everything they can about that area of interest so that they can risk manage effectively. And as Jonathan alluded to earlier, it's about identifying that risk, owning it, and working out how you can overcome it to achieve the required output. The interpretation, again, the data management is a process, it's incredibly flexible, it's not necessarily static. To provide influence to the decision makers, which will result in the delivery of the positive impact into the area of interest. I've already mentioned a few of these as we've been going through, but the network-centric information-led model for industrial aviation is all about using a network approach, sharing information, departing from verticals within industry. So looking, thinking outside the box, looking to the side to see how the data you're gathering could be used by somebody else to keep them safe. It joins people who are perhaps geographically dislocated. 
It delivers universal access to real-time information and big data. And that's key because decisions based on real-time information, on valid information, are what we need to achieve. Most importantly, it boosts mutual situational awareness and promotes effective decision-making, enhanced agility and sustainability. They're key for Bristow Group for the next 60 years and beyond. Thank you very much. I'll now be handing over to Nick to talk about the data side of it. Thanks, Ben. So, <clears throat> so I think, you know, out of, out of the information-led approach that Bristow Group are taking, we're now just going to dive into the technology and how, I suppose, Sky Futures is bringing that, that vision uh, to the fore in terms of what we, how we're using that with both software and the deployment of this unique aerial perspective that we talked about earlier. So the technology is it's all about the data. It's drone-enabled data for us at this stage, and that's something that you know, we had to dive into uh, very carefully over the last few years and develop what, what we now have today, as you saw in the video. So we changed the project cycle. Um, if you're a large organization, you need a cloud-based, facility-centric data view. You need to see as much data as you possibly can. It comes in, as Ben's just described, from multiple feeds. Um, we need partners as well, just like Bristow Group needs partners, Sky Futures needs partners as well. And you saw that with the confined space drone um, that uh, we helped develop the process for. But really for us, in terms of a software play, it starts to become information over time, or what we've termed four-dimensional data. So I just want to break down the, the, the various component technology parts very briefly um, to say kind of what we care about and what we don't necessarily care about in terms of the output. So in terms of the front end, you obviously have the drone and the sensor. The drone, actually, the platforms, whilst they're extremely, you know, they're extremely clever, they've miniaturized the, the equipment that I might have in an Airbus 320 into a tiny box, it's extremely clever. But actually, without the ability to carry that sensor, it's almost redundant. And this is where it's really changed the game in terms of that aerial perspective that I talked about and the unique characteristics of the drone. So the platform, there are some fantastic original equipment manufacturers out there. We leave them to that. Sky Futures is not going to become a, a, drone, a, a drone manufacturer at any time in the near future or beyond, I wouldn't have thought. Um, but what we do care is the range of sensors. What type of sensor are there? Um, what information do we need? What does the client need? And what do we need at the back end? So there is an example, which I'll show you in a minute, where we actually couldn't measure stuff from photogrammetry. So we developed a, or we couldn't measure it enough with enough accuracy. So we developed a proprietary laser device that enables you to develop, uh, to, to, to measure and scale those images, which is hugely important for us. But actually then, if you strip out the front end, it's the back end stuff. So you've got a whole load of data. When we went offshore for the first time in 2011, we came back with 40 gigabytes of data. And I'll be honest, that's where our problem started. <laughs> so... Yeah, at that point, how do you organize it? How do you classify it? How do you make it available to all of the different users within that organization that you're trying to sell this really valuable data for them? How do you put intelligence on it? And so that's really what the software is starting to do. Um, so we enabled this cloud-based facility through our inspection portal and now into Flight Deck, which is a fleet and flight management um, piece of software. And we essentially publish it. It's available in the cloud on multiple devices, et cetera, et cetera. 
So now we start to see that in the top left-hand corner of that schematic, the drone flight is one part of an extremely complica complicated process that then ends up at all the multiple stake stakeholders back into the loop. And again, how we're trying to derive the safer, faster, more efficient uh, process of doing things. So that really has become the process with which we followed to try and build up our software models. And really, to try and put that in a, in a graphical context, you know, where, where, are the where are our clients getting the value? The value is, it used to be a huge amount of data gathering, then followed by a, a large amount of data sorting, you know, those poor engineers burning their eyes out in front, of a, in front of a computer screen, into data analytics. And then finally, you got to the action point, which is, you know, if you're Shell or BP or um, a large wind turbine operator, that's the point that you need, you know, that's the point at which we get paid and that's the point with which they need to get to. So we need to build it into data analysis and action and do that as much as we can because that's the unique characteristic of the drone. So this is just a, a quick schematic of uh, um, expanse inspection. So within two clicks, you're able now to see a global map of your facilities. You're then able to zoom in to a particular infrastructure. Um, this is a flare tower inspection. Uh, you can move around, the, uh, move around the infrastructure, and you can start to see where the baubles are, where the problems have been on that particular inspection. You've then got the 3D schematic, that asset-centric view, with all of the data sets um, um, associated with it in the top right-hand corner. You can also zoom in, you can continue to move around the 3D model, and you can also zoom in and highlight where the engineer has highlighted where there may be problems. So you can start to see that that PDF report is now significantly different. But actually, we also give it in a, fair, in a few different other forms, which is this, this kind of baseline, what are my problems, where are the anomalies, which the engineers quite like with the, with the various traffic light systems with all the anomalies. And we also provide a download PDF report as well, because some of the guys just can't get away from the PDF report. <laughs> so that's expense inspection, which has been hugely important to us. But not only that's the organization and classification bit, but I talked about the laser device. So this is a proprietary laser device that SkyFutures had developed. Once you know the distance between two lasers, and then apply some clever mass, and then centralize the dots within a tenth of a millimeter, you can start to measure stuff. So not only can we start to say, well, is that a two-inch two pipe or a 20-inch pipe? We now know the answer to that question. We can do it across cylindrical surfaces, flat surfaces. We also know the incidence because we have this fantastic telemetry from the drone. So we can start to do algorithms that can cancel out the instances, whether you're looking left or right. You don't necessarily need to be absolutely perpendicular. And this is actually an early prototype of what we've developed. So this now sits at the back end of expanse inspection. Um, you also need, you need to cut down that time that that engineer is burning his or her eyes out looking for the image because they have to look through that video. So again, you've got the unique characteristics of the drone, which is telemetry mixed with, with, with data. So you can use algorithms to basically search through the telemetry to find an image, and then you can use the image data to look for the various fingerprint of an image that you're looking for. So in the top left-hand side is the image that we've asked the algorithm to look for, and then it brings it out through a series of about 800 photos in this particular algorithm, and it picks out the exact image that you're looking for. Again, that's cutting down the time for the inspector by about 85%. Also, corrosion is a major factor on a lot of a lot of the duty holders' books. So, you know, how quickly is my how quickly is my asset corroding? Well, once you have 
a legacy piece of data, which you'll see in the left-hand tile there, then you've just done your drone flight, you now have two sets of data, and then you can start to measure and track over time. The benefit of this is the more drone flights you do, the more the more valuable, actually, the more accurate that that data becomes. So you start with two data sets, but that could be 20,000 data sets, you know, sort of 10, 15 years hence if you're doing two or three drone flights a day. So that's really important. Again, that 4D information over time aspect to the software. So that's very much on the Expanse inspection side. And again, in the Expanse suite of software that Sky Futures have, we now have this thing called Flight Deck. So my continual frustration as a man pilot has been the fact that by the time I get to my own flight deck, I've interfaced with around about six different pieces of software. So we thought, well, we need to be able to change that. We need to be able to get all the process into one piece of software. And I'll just let the video run because this is a recently launched piece of software. That Since 2009, Sky Futures has been delivering drone operations in the most challenging and hazardous environments across the globe. We have been leading the innovation of UAV-based inspections, finding safer, faster, and more cost-effective ways to collect data. FlightDeck is the latest addition to the SkyFutures software suite for UAV-led industrial inspection. Built out of experience flying in the most safety-critical industries. As an operations manager, FlightDeck offers a global overview of your missions, personnel, and equipment for consistent and effective management of safety, operations, and risk. As a pilot, Flight Deck provides tools, checklists, best practice developed from industrial experience, and assurance that your kit is airworthy and your safety procedures are covered. Flight Deck delivers to you a full range of capabilities, including mission planning, risk assessment, site assessment, Flight playback in 3D, full pilot and UAV technical logs, and safety management dashboard. Flight Deck assures professionalism and peace of mind for both enterprise and individuals. We've built the future. How are you going to use it? So that's Expanse Flight Deck again, which is a recently launched piece of software. And really just this next slide, a few slides are giving you a flavor for that data and telemetry piece. Where's it all going? So the flight deck is the baseline and you saw the 3D world with which Sky Futures is building everything into now. And now we have the capability, which we're looking to roll out at some point uh, in the future, to be able to associate that drone flight in the 3D world um, across the time bar as you slide through, you'll be able to see the associated data that has gone with that flight as well. So if you think of compliance, if you think of legacy, if you think of how you want to fly your, fly your flight plans in the future, a move towards automation for your drone flying, um, this sort of, sort of link-up is hugely important to sit within the Expanse Flight Deck software. So just as the last piece, we're going to talk a little bit more in the future, but actually some of the things that Sky Future and Bristow have been doing is to, to the interoperability piece, which both uh, Ben and Jonathan and James alluded to. So where does the danger lie? 
Below 1,000 feet, I know everybody is worried about an airliner hitting um, a drone at Heathrow or Gatwick. Well, that, that probably will happen at some stage, but ultimately it's the sorts of environments with which typically Bristow Group and Sky Futures and any other unmanned users are, are launching, whether it could be police, ambulance, fire uh, and rescue, have this capability now. If they're going to launch all this stuff into an environment where actually there's a lot of manned aircraft operating as well, the interoperability piece starts to become really important. So there's various work underway uh, between the two businesses to basically maximise our understanding of this environment and actually work out what it's going to look like in the future. It's quite conceptual at this stage, but it's something that we're working on very carefully. But ultimately, that lower 1,000 foot in either controlled or uncontrolled airspace is the bit that we're really, really interested in. So there's a couple of ways which we're looking. So there's a dynamic airspace booking system concept, which is live. Um, which we hope to build into Flight Deck in the future, whereby if you can think ahead to what that airspace is going to look like, um, it's a dynamic NOTAM system type thing, but also it has the airspace understanding and, and through various relationships with ANSPs or air navigation service providers uh, and others, we can start to build a picture of what this might look like, i.e. we can use pieces of software which can be compliant to start to look at this dynamic airspace. So, for example... Ben showed you know, the, 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 uh, the search and rescue mission that might come in with all those different aspects and all those different aircraft coming into that space. If we can think ahead to what that airspace looks like through software, then we're in a very good place. So dynamic airspace booking system is something we're looking into, as well as, excuse me, ADSB. So ADSB is as a standalone is probably not the answer, but actually if you then go into, you're into the airspace and, and, and there's the ability to mitigate, then ADSB could be very helpful. And there's various thought processes going on between the two companies about how we can actually make this happen, because actually information needs to be at the pilots when they need it, not all the time, because as, as any helicopter pilot or any aviation, manned aviation pilot in the room will tell you, there's a lot of information now coming into flight decks, so it's almost trying to keep that information out but how do you get it when you need it? But ADSB, I think there are some solutions in there. We've also been looking at aircraft inspection uh, by UAS between the two companies. Um, so work, work progresses quite nicely, and, and I think actually there's a big future for drones on airfields. It might sound slightly paradoxical. But if you look at things like lightning strikes, AOG bags, routine inspections, configuration defect lists, MEL, um, you could even have your live log being a 3D MEL, then there's a lot of potential, actually, for drones to be interoperable within the airport environment. And this next slide very quickly shows some of the hangar inspections we did up in Aberdeen um, <coughs> with a bit of a long-lost 225 aircraft, but showing you how, actually, expanse inspection is enabled to take a lot of this anomaly tracking systems that we can have within the same world as what we showed on the, on the, on the software video. And this next one's a schematic. A lot of the ADSB work we've done is with a company called UAVionics, and they have very much have this same vision or share the same vision as which we do. So um, just in this schematic, you can see at the bottom left, there's some very low-powered, um, very non-obstructive systems that you can put around the airfield to start to track some of the movement. And obviously, it's not just the drones flying, but it's also the ground vehicle movements as well. If you think uh, whenever you've been on, a, on, on an aircraft last, 
um, the aircraft arrives at the gate and how many people suddenly come around that aircraft. There's a safety element right there and something that I think that we can really change in terms of future airport and smart technology that we can go into it. So finally, just to finish off the presentation before we take questions, we're just going to look at some of the interoperability trials that I was hoping to do in the UK, but um, for, for one reason or another, um, we couldn't get the improvements that we were after. So we ended up doing it in the, in the USA, but it's been particularly exciting because actually it just shows how Bristow and Sky Futures are bringing this to light. So um, you've got an S-92 aircraft, you have a, a UAS uh, that Sky Futures, the team out in America, provided, and the UAVionics ADS-B. So we wanted to just do a proof of concept to show that you could make helicopters and drones interoperable. So very simply, our objectives were to maintain simultaneous operations between the S-92 and the Aztec Falcon 8, which is the drone we used. So we established a set of safety rules before we even started, lateral and vertical boundaries for the, for the UAS. And we were using the UAVionics Ping 2020 system, which works across the 978 megahertz or the UAT spectrum out in the States. And that was the team that did it. Just a very short space on the integration. Uh, it's obviously ADS-B in, but also ADS-B out as well. Um, and you can see how this is miniaturized, um, which is, you know, it's really fantastic technology that UAVionics have been promoting over the last few years. So the operation was done at Bristow Galliano, um, which is a private airfield uh, out in Texas. Um, it was obviously fully regulated by the FAA and the regulator. Um, a little bit of information about the weather, but uh, you can obviously see the helicopter and you can just about see the UAS. Okay? We were never more than or less than 70 meters laterally spaced, and the whole plan was to step up in 100-foot increments. If I'm honest, I wasn't sure whether we were going to get to 100 feet. Um, but we test, fully tested the kit before we got going, and we achieved some fantastic results. So this is a, a screenshot from the iPad or the Stratus device that, uh, that the Bristow helicopters were seeing live. So you can see the blue ball, which is the actual helicopter position versus the map, and then you can start to see what anybody that's flown with TCAS enabled is a TCAS-like signature. So that's on the ground as they were doing the testing, minus 500 feet. And then we stepped it up, as we promised, by 100 feet each time. So the helicopter, minus 400 feet. And you can even see the registration because there's a registration process of the drone <laughs> in the States as well. So it's nice that that came up. And these are screenshots from the, from the live video playback that came in. And again, minus 300 feet, then minus 200 feet. And on the first go, we managed to get within 100 foot of the manned helicopter. There's not been much of this testing done around the world. So really, I wouldn't claim it as a world first, but it was certainly you know, the first commercial type test that I think was achieved. So this is a picture directly from the helicopter. You can see the US crew, but very interestingly, they never ever saw the drone. The drone is 2.4 kilos. It's about yay big. You'll see one upstairs when you go. But the helicopter crew never ever saw the drone. And now, I know that may seem obvious now, but actually that was probably the biggest lesson learned from the, from the test. But the drone could see the helicopter, and they could even zoom in and see the pilot. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, we, we were very careful to plan this safely. There were no, no fly zones directly in front and on top of, the, obviously, the S92. The Ping 2020 works absolutely as advertised on mobile iPad-type technology. 
okay? And it provided crucial situation awareness to that helicopter crew. And a captain of 45 years in aviation felt very comfortable with the information he was receiving. So that was the test. And I'd like to thank you all very much for listening. I hope it hasn't gone on too long. But um, we'll, we'll take some questions. And I hope that was in, interesting information. And we look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, we have time for a few questions. Do we have roving mics? Okay, there are two at the back. Okay, if you don't mind stating your name and affiliation before asking the question, I'd be grateful. Okay, any questions? Okay, the couple at the front. My name is Hannah from IMK. Uh, the last week uh, in Iraq, uh, Daesh uh, used uh, drones used from uh, first material like uh, cupboards and cartons, very simple, to drop uh, bombs on the civilians. What uh, thing do you uh, think that we can control these things in the future? Control the drones and uh, the jeopardize the whole of the world in such situation, there may be in the future uh, a drone, chemical bombs, or these things. They are very simple and very small. I saw them on TV. Thank you. Well, I, they're looking at me because there's a, a bigger, I'm regretting maybe that snap election uh, thing that I put in, <laughs> because this gets into the politics of how you, but I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna Step away from that, and because I think your question really is, how do we control this technology, right? It's like they computer. Don't have a computer. Exactly, exactly. They have a, a computers and they have camera on them. Very, very small one. I right. From couple and cartons. Well, yes, this they, they make them in the houses. They now have been seized or they surrounded by what ten square kilometers area, and they use everything to. So I'm going, to, I'm going to let the technologist talk, but just know um, we are already involved somewhat in the control of drones through our search and rescue with the United Kingdom, um, with our partnership um, with the MCA. There have been search and rescue helicopters that have actually had to be tasked to, to go after what you would call a rogue drone. Um, these are more politically motivated, so I don't want to get into it. But there is technology to be able to, for lack of a better word, control or bring down drones, right? And they use them uh, today uh, quite regularly um, for lots of different applications. I'll let you guys talk about it a little bit more. Um, for us, it's uh, from a safety standpoint, drones, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we're, we're very slow to get, a lot of this technology is not advanced technology. To be able to do that slewing of an S92 with a drone is not difficult technology, but we want to go slow because of, remember what I said at the beginning, unintended consequences, right? The unintended consequences of this technology, especially in a, in a political environment, can be very difficult, but also the commercial environment. You imagine if there's a drone that lose, is lost uh, on, a, on a platform, right? Although it doesn't have any uh, particular uh, chemicals, it does have lithium-ion batteries, which are very flammable. Um, and if it gets lost in an area where a platform has tremendous amount of hydro hydrocarbons, that's incredibly dangerous 
uh, separate from if, you're, if your intent is to hurt somebody. But talk about a little bit about drone control. Sure, yeah, so I think there's um, a couple of things there that the manufacturers are working on to, to try and lock these things down, so putting geolocks on so you can't fly in certain areas. Um, and there's also some anti-drone measures. There's quite a few companies out there that do everything from jamming to, to literally physically restraining you know, these drones. So there, there is technology kind of catching up on the kind of counter-drone side. Um, but I think if you, if you kind of, in a wider context, what I will say is, you know, there's always going to be bad actors with any technology. I mean, with, with autonomous cars, you know, they're pretty dangerous and, and they could be obviously you know, used for nefarious purposes as, as we've seen you know, in, in London recently. I think you, you cannot control things that, that are outside. What we can do is regulate for the majority. And I think that's where we've, we've really kind of, and, and Nick particularly have been working with not just the CA, but as you said, 23, um, 23 aviation authorities globally to try and set a standard and set a precedent. And then within oil and gas or within different industries, we've helped to work with those industries themselves to, to set the guidelines. Because you know, to fly a drone on an oil and gas rig, you need to be operating far higher level with your safety management system and everything else in place and you're going to be much more efficient than if you're going to fly in the middle of a field in, in Hereford, you know, you don't need to have the same sort of safety levels because the, the risk there is, is far different. So I think it's, it's around, you know, the, I would separate the, the two things aside. There is some technology and some counter technology and, and, and there, you know, already I think there's about nine companies working on this and, and a lot have appeared in the last couple of years. So um, we will see, you know, People trying to exploit the technology, but I think we'll see technologists you know, also acting on that very quickly. Oliver Shai from uh, Airbus. I would like to ask you a question about the limitation of identified um, linked to weather uh, dependence. Such a small system is probably weather dependent. Can you please tell us more about that? That's the first question. Sure. The second question is, I see a systemic um, ah, I see a uh, systemic opposition between UAS and helicopters. How do you welcome the idea of um, a platform that does have a small helicopter integrating the technology of a UAS, such as the VSR 700 that we're developing for the UK Navy? You go with the first one, I'll get the second one. So, to, we'll to your point on you know, clearly um, whether Weather is a big factor, as with anything in aviation. Um, and uh, you know, what started off, so the, the external drone that you saw, the Falcon 8 UAS, um, it started off with a capacity of around about 25 knots. Um, and now with the updated firmware, we can cope with gusts of 29 knots, and it's 2.4 kilos in weight. Um, and we get the imagery stable. Where we can't... We can't do things like laser measurement if there's water on the lens at the moment. So um, in terms of the, the, the data output side of life with the Falcon 8, sometimes we, you know, when it starts raining, clearly we can't rely on that data at the back end. So there is an issue there. But actually, 29 knots of wind, and by the way, they stop climbing at around about 21 knots, so a human being will stop climbing around about, you know, we've already got an additional 20% of of, or, and, and more, actually, of, of, of capacity over the human being in terms of what they'll climb into. So I'll, that's yeah, I'll, just, I'll just add to that, and just uh, there's another piece of context here. You know, the, the drones are operating when people can't, so, so that's a massive gain already. Um, yeah. So we're, we're reducing the number of hours of people at risk. Over the last 70 projects that we've done, we've taken 10 years' worth of rope access inspections out, made them totally redundant. So that 10 years of people 
you know, potentially at risk to do inspections has now been redirected to maintenance and, and other things. So we're, we're, we're making the industry far, far more efficient. And if you think, you know, rope access this is still fallible, people can still get injured and hurt. So even though we're not seeing what we'd like to see, which is, you know, being able to fly in all conditions and be able to collect data all the time, it's already a significant advantage over, over the incumbent today. I think your, your other question, and Ben will answer it, is, is really that interaction between a helicopter um, and a helicopter that's unmanned. I mean, it starts to actually ask more cosmic questions, which is which is which, <laughs> right? Um, which nobody's asked the question, so I'll say right now, are we committed to having unmanned logistics that are carrying people uh, back and forth between uh, platforms or rigs or any other place? I would say that that is something that I don't see right now uh, in the next decade, but I see it in the next decades. And that's how I describe it to our board of directors. I don't see it in the next decade, but I see it in the next decades. I sure as heck see already technology available. What we're using now for these sensors can easily be applied to an S76, to a 92. The technology is similar. Um, and so the question is, do you then do what the US Army is using, which they're, they're using unmanned Blackhawks for supply? And, and I can tell you, again, I'm not telling you that we're going to get into this you know, in the next year, but this type of work, this type of partnership gets us ready to do that type of work. Remember the helicopters that Alan flew 60 years ago carried maybe, what, two people, right? Three people other than the pilot. So we're, we're going to be progressing this, and the key is to be able to do it safely. If we can do it safely replacing people who are on ropes, I know that we can do it safely in hauling, you know, some type of, of equipment, especially to metal and mining, maybe not offshore. But um, there's no doubt that we're going to be probably seeing the demanding of our logistics fleet in helicopters, at least getting down to one pilot, which our OEMs, I mean, you probably know better than me, Airbus, Sikorsky, all of them are looking at trying to get a helicopter with full capability with, with one, what you would call pilot system operator. Does that answer your question, by the way? Okay, so where did I answer your question and ask a following one? I don't want to leave you hanging here. I, we haven't seen the necessity for that yet. So the question was, can you create something in between uh, an unmanned S-76 or, or, you know, 169 that does things? Yeah, there are going to be other things that you at Airbus will come up with. The only thing is, is the technology that we're trying to partner with to do this type of work, I can tell you our clients, from a safety standpoint, will not start working with anything like this unless it can be proven out in other places um, because of uh, the safety and operating interoperability which gets to Ben's idea, whether you're using a, something that can carry 700 kilos or, a, or you know, seven passengers, the technology and understanding of that is very similar from, a, from an operator standpoint. Okay, I have time for one or two questions, more questions at the front. Uh, Steve Colson from the MarTech Group. I wonder what the panel think are the biggest technological challenges that will lead to the next tipping point in the use of UAS? That, that's I, th I think that has, has come up with a couple of the questions there, that, that the next big tipping point will be that very fine mesh between manned and unmanned. So I think that the next key point, uh, as Nick alluded to previously, is that integration and interoperability piece. Uh, because, uh, and as Jonathan mentioned, 
there is appetite, and it goes back to the network-centric idea where you have a golf bag and you use whichever club is best suited for the, for the, the issue that the, the, that the industry is facing. So there is some appetite to put unmanned technologies for applications such as data gathering, uh, such as monitoring, surveillance, etc. Significantly less appetite for logistics supply, especially when you are dealing with transport of people. Um, so bearing that in mind, there is going to become a manned, unmanned point. Uh, so the integration piece for me is what will take us into the next chapter. I think the interesting part is that the technology is already being proven out, right? This is not technology that has to be invented. Today, if we wanted to, we could, I wouldn't call it easily, but we could take people from Aberdeen to the Anasura, you know, platform and back. We could do it tomorrow if we needed to, right? But there is a, there's a uh, interoperability, there's a comfort level, there's, you know, I can tell you Bristow's not gonna do it anytime soon, uh, but, but the technology is available uh, to do it. And interestingly, just to, just to go, put it into a different context, driverless cars, if you had all driverless cars all on a network, they would all know what the other driverless car was doing. It's when you have a driver, drivered car, <laughs> and a driverless car that the integration is perhaps uh, a conflict. So, Especially with my children. Yeah. <laughs> so to put it into a different context, as I say, that, that integration piece will be exactly the same in that space as the, as the aviation space. Question in the back. Thank you. Uh, yes, Nick Miller from Talis. Very interesting briefing. Uh, you highlighted safety, critical, and of course, data analytics. Pretty, really important, really. My two questions one is on the public acceptance regulatory side, and the other is about a technology one. Uh, first of all, how are you going to look at the public acceptance from your safe offshore area? The regulation is quite easy there. When you come in house in, in, um, in cities and do the operations that way and get the awareness of the public, what are you doing about that? And secondly is on your sense and avoid, very active solution, ADSB, very clear, uh, nice that you've done a trial. What about passive sense and avoid? Are you looking at some of that? Uh, looking at some of the class G airspace and uncontrolled airspace? Yeah, I'm going to answer the safety piece first and then hand yeah, over the technology. Yeah. On the safety piece, I mean, I, I don't want to be too uh, blunt about this, but just because you're, again, it gets back to what our core value of safety is. Just because somebody's offshore doesn't mean they need to be less safe because somebody's living in a city, right? So we treat them virtually identical, and I think our regulators do too. I know the CA is quite focused on, on the safety either side. I think that there is a different level of risk when you're flying in, in a city in a congested environment, but from a, from a safety standpoint, the, what we're hearing from our regulators whether it be the CA or FAA, they're treating it, at least right now, uh, pretty, pretty similarly. But go ahead. Yeah, I think public perception is a really interesting question. Um, back, in, back in 2009, 2010, if we went, when we went to speak to you know, people at Shell or BP, we'd say, guys, you know, we want to fly some drones around your platform. They thought we were nuts. So, what, what do you mean a weaponized you know, killing machine around my platform? And that was the perception. If you, if you ask, you know, if you go, if I go into BP or Shell today and say, you know, you know, we have drones, they'd be like, all oh, right, yeah, like a DJI Phantom, brilliant. There's been a massive shift in perception already, a huge shift. Um, I think you know, it's accepted. People understand them. You know, they, you know, they're small, you know, fun toys. You know, the commercial market came first, but that was kind of the. So, so we've already had a lot of that, and I guess 
Um, I, was at a, I was in Amsterdam yesterday, and one of the questions we put back to the audience on, on, a, on the kind of safety and exceptions question was, who in the audience would be happy to, to fly in a completely unmanned airplane today? I mean, I know I would. I, I would have no drama getting in a plane, pilot not touching the controls whatsoever. We know That's it's proven. That's what my co-pilot used to tell me. But I think we've already come a long way, and I think proving it off, the amount that we can go to the regulators with the amount of hours we've flown, with the safety cases, and obviously with improving OEM you know, technology, uh, and really kind of make that case. And I think you know, we've done some, some pretty great stuff. We've flown right by the airport in, in Heathrow um, a couple of times, and we did that really early with the support of the regulators. So I think the public perception is shifting incredibly fast, and it, and it shifts quicker than, than we in the industry actually realize. Yeah, and just to, just to add to that point, I suppose the, that's why, you know, the question that Nick asked is, is why the interoperable bit is so important, because if you strip it back to 2009, um, you know, very much the regulatory set was, well, um, you can use the airspace, but you can only use it under some very specific circumstances. Now, I'll take the UK as a case in point. They have operating safety cases. Um, there are drone operations going on around, I don't think night ones, but certainly day drone operations, even under the heavy lanes in London, on construction sites under a regulated authority. So it's kind of already happening, as James has just said, but actually, you know, how are we going to move from the status quo now into where we need to be? And, and, and the answer really is kind of what we showed earlier. It's through software and through mitigating capabilities or technologies like ADSB. You know, some people in this room may have other ideas, but again, it's going to have to be that mix of software, uh, of platform software and, um, and, and, and hardware to support what it's doing. And it has to be a so. practical solution for what the client needs, exactly. right? I mean, we're trying to solve things for what a client needs in, in 2017 and 18, not what they need in 2029. And we, that's why we think the interoperability, I mean, today, to do a flare tip inspection, you need a lot of situational awareness. And then you need that much more to do a flare tip change, right? Those are very dangerous operations. You're in very high intense environments. And to be able to have, you know, two drones out there being able to give the pilot better situational awareness, I think is going to bring the safety uh, improvement and, and bring the safety case up. And, and it'll help make them get done much faster too and, and with a higher level. A lot of our, remember flare tip inspections get done well offshore. You need a lot of fuel. So, you know, if you're going to spend all that time, three, four hours to get out there, especially like in Canada, you're going to get out there to do the flare tip inspection and then y you don't know what's going on. Well, drop two drones, be able to slave them to your aircraft and do it that much faster. Get out of that environment quick. And the, we think that the UAS system will allow us to do, though that's a practical application that we will start applying quite soon. Uh, just one other part of that is uh, we touched on the importance of the sensor and as sensors develop actually when you talk about bringing the drone from the offshore to the onshore as you get better sensors you can increase your standoff so to get the data that you need to get the you know the fidelity and the quality you don't actually have to be close into an asset so as the sensors develop actually you can increase safety margins uh, and and manage or start to manage the safety in that manner as well. I would encourage as well, you know, 
people to talk to, um, the likes of in situ who are here tonight sponsoring as well. I mean, they've got some fantastic VIDAR equipment which meshes in again, sort of AIS feed with maritime picture with all of that kind of stuff. And those sorts of, you know, again, beyond visual line of sight payloads, which unfortunately we don't have time to talk too much about tonight because we've got enough information in. But, um, but the, you know, the, those sorts of movements that some of the, I suppose, the defence OEMs who are now moving into the civil world for the opportunity that exists. You know, I think those sorts of platforms and payloads and sensors are going to start to become very, very important in the next in the next few years, certainly, if not already, to be honest. And that's a really good point, actually, that uh, Nick makes. When Alan Bristow started off, there were no civil helicopter manufacturers. All helicopters that were being manufactured were for defence purposes. And that technology was applied into the civil sector and done so in a fashion that was safe and effective and changed the way people perceived industrial sectors. We're going through the same change now. But it must be done in partnership. <laughs> it's really important. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, I think we need to uh, draw the evening to a close. Uh, I did mention at the beginning that uh, University of Liverpool was joining us on an audio link and they were supposed to be sending questions via high-tech method. Unfortunately, I have received no questions, so maybe I suggest we use pigeon post or drone post maybe in the future. Uh, can I call upon now uh, Gretchen Haskins from the Rotograph Committee to uh, give a vote of thanks? So on behalf of the Royal Aeronautical Society uh, Rotocraft Committee, I would like to thank Jonathan, James, Nix, and Ben for that really interesting and exciting talk. I mean, while you were talking, I, I couldn't help but think about the pioneering spirit that's in aviation and um, the many challenges that people who have been visionary in aviation have been able to overcome. And through the years, you know, Alan Bristow was obviously one of those with that pioneering spirit and the willingness to create a vision of the future and make it happen. And what it strikes me is that... Um, there was also a lot of talk about safety, which is near and dear to my heart, and that, that safety isn't about not changing. It's about embracing and managing change effectively. And safety isn't about applying minimum standards. It's about performance and trying to find ways of creating excellence in performance. And safety doesn't happen by technology alone. Safety happens in an integrated environment between humans and machines to achieve goals. And so I really like to see the kind of interoperability integration approach that you're thinking about. How do we get all of the, this to work together for the benefit of humankind? And how do we use technology to help advance uh, our, our endeavors? So I really enjoyed the talk. I'm sure everyone did. We got great questions. Thanks very much. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. 
share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.